Hey, tennis fans, and welcome to another edition of Match Point Canada, the official Tennis Canada podcast. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre. You can find us on Twitter at Match Point Can. You can find us on Instagram, Match Point Canada. You can find Mike at McIntyre Tennis, and you can find me at Ben Lewis SN590. We have a great episode ahead of us. We're officially arriving at U.S. Open qualifying from Flushing Meadows as the final Grand Slam of the tennis season is upon us. Daniel Medvedev and Madison Keys both produced titles at the Western and Southern Open this past week. We have an interview with highly respected chair umpire Julie Shenley, and we also speak with the Minister of Sport in Canada, Kirsty Duncan. But first, Mike, I, I want to start in Cincinnati uh, where I'd say not just one, but really two surprise winners this past week. And we can really start on the men's side because Daniel Medvedev just continues to win matches week after week, uh, putting up big time results. Yeah, what a crazy week in Cincinnati. I had a lot of fun sort of following the scores, even though I was on my self-imposed exile from Twitter while I was <laughs> camping with my family. I couldn't help but check in at least once, once daily to see who was winning and what was happening. And, I mean, when it gets to the part where you see Richard Gasquet in the semifinals of a Masters 1000, um, you know, serious eyebrow raise on that one. And then uh, to see, you know, someone other than the big three who's standing at the end of it, I know it's becoming a little bit more of a, an occurrence uh, in the Masters 1000 uh, events, but still see Medvedev go through and have such a, a dominating week. He's had such a great stretch over the last month, making the finals in D.C., making the finals in Montreal, and now going one step further. And to take out Djokovic en route is incredibly impressive stuff from uh, the young Russian, to say the least. Yeah, he's really just been winning matches uh, throughout the year. The only thing I think that's missing on the resume for Medvedev is a big Grand Slam result, but he leads the ATP right now with 44 wins. He's 31-8 and eight on hard courts. As you said, finals in City Open, where Kyrgios got him there. Uh, it was a mismatch with Nadal the other week in Montreal, but uh, that big three-set win over Djokovic has to give him a lot of confidence, and now he's entering the top five uh, for the first time in his career he's fifth overall and to me I I have to think he's probably the best player outside of the big three right now since uh, we're off of clay and uh, to me that that would put him ahead of a Dominic team he's having such a terrific summer as are so many of the Russians I mean uh, Karen Hachinov has been pretty solid Uh, Rublev with the big upset obviously over Roger Federer and, and Medvedev leading leading the charge there but for me, it's going to you know, remain to be seen now what happens when he transitions to the final slam of 2019 because you know, in the past, he's played 11 main draw slam events and only once has he gone past the uh, third round, which was at the Australian Open earlier this year where he made the final 16. So does he take the next step now? Does he graduate to be amongst the big boys and have a, a deep run here at a slam? Or do we see a little bit more of like a, a Sasha Zverev where having the success at the Masters 1000s and other tour level events but can't quite translate that when it comes to best of five yet so i'm going to be very intrigued to see how he uh, proceeds from here and does he carry that momentum forward yeah we'll be very curious to see indeed uh, that round of 16 appearance i guess at the australian open one thing to note is uh, reaching that round of 16 losing to novak there he really pestered him that was a lengthy four set match and uh, really it was medvedev who gave Djokovic. Uh, the most problems of anybody at the Aussie Open uh, earlier this year. So seemingly he can build off this fantastic summer and produce a result at the U.S. Open. Not sure he's reached 
contender status yet. But uh, as you mentioned, Roger Federer had a surprise loss to Andre Rublev, certainly the biggest win of Rublev's career, really took it to him in straight sets. Uh, should we kind of, well, as you said, raise an eyebrow, but should we worry, be fearful of Federer's chances going to the U.S. Open, or is this just kind of a, a little blip in just one match? No, I don't know if I'm ever going to worry about Roger Federer again with what he's done since 2017. I mean, you think back to that Grand Slam drought between 2012, 2017. He had a whole bunch of, you know, blips like this on a more regular basis where he was losing the guys where you were really scratching your head. Um, and so the past two and a half, almost three years now, he's been so solid, so dominant, so, uh, you know, firmly back in that big three uh, not just with the slam success in 17 and, and 18, but just, I mean, his record has been unbelievable this year. So, you know, coming back after Wimbledon, opting not to play in Canada as he's opted out of, you know, several times in the past few years, not going to surprise me if, if something like this happens. Uh, I mean, it certainly wasn't expected. Rublev is a talented guy. I can't recall what the head to head is there, but probably someone that Federer doesn't have a whole lot of experience playing against. And so, no, I'm not terribly concerned. I think, again, when we get to best of five, these guys, they're so locked in, they're so experienced, and they definitely want to peak for those moments that I don't think he or Djokovic, who went a couple rounds further, are really going to uh, you know, can be too concerned about what happened. In, uh, in Cincinnati this past week. That's that's my take anyways. Yeah, as you mentioned, actually, the head-to-head was 0-0 before they went into that match. So uh, certainly Ru- Rublev kind of catching him uh, off guard and catching him by surprise the first time they're ever playing. And, uh, you know, Federer not quite used to Rublev's patterns, and he was just pounding that inside-out forehand kind of all day against Federer, uh, using those fast uh, courts in Cincinnati to his advantage. So great win for him. Uh, it's Medvedev who gets the title. No fears here uh, as well, as you said, for Novak Djokovic. Uh, he's been the most dominant player of 2019, really stretching back to the middle of 2018 when he won Wimbledon and uh, has won four of the last five Grand Slams. So to me, he has to be the, the favorite at the U.S. Open. And then you're probably looking at Nadal Federer and everybody else. Veteran Richard Gasquet was the uh, certainly a surprise as well, reaching the, the semifinals. That's his first Masters semifinal since 2013. Felix Ojeali-Yassim, he didn't really have a a great result in Cincinnati, and uh, Canadian Open uh, got a couple of wins there, but he is entering the top 20 and is the highest-ranked Canadian male, uh, surpassing Milos Raonic, who has, of course, uh, dealt with so many injuries this season. Does that maybe raise the bar on our expectations for him? I'm curious to see what he can do at Flushing Meadows as well. Well, it's going to raise the bar for some people with Felix, but I'm keeping my expectations pretty tempered. I mean, we talked about this with Dennis after that run in 2017 in Montreal, how mm. the next season, his first full season really as a pro, was such a learning curve in terms of the travel and, you know, being on your own and life in hotels and, and the sudden fame and all that kind of stuff. And for Felix, I think now it's really starting to happen for him as well. This is his first really long, grueling season as a professional tennis player. He just turned 19 years old. So there's all sorts of stuff off the court that I think we take for granted, that we don't discuss, that that tennis fans and people in the media are so quick to to not even acknowledge. And you've got to realize that that this guy is so young. And if you put yourself in his shoes, like I couldn't imagine having traveled the world to that extent when I was just 18, 19 years old and and going through all of the, you know, developmental changes physically, mentally, uh, all the added pressures and whatnot that he's going through. So, um, I don't know. Lately, it's been a little bit slower for him, I guess, in terms of uh, tangible results. 
But uh, that being said, it's uh, it's all part of the process. He's been, you know, revered uh, across the tennis world in terms of his potential and the the upside to Felix Auger-Aliassime. I think he's handled himself really well off the court in press with the fans. And uh, so let's not rush the kid. My expectations aren't so high. If he can go a few rounds in Flushing Meadows, that's great. But otherwise, it's just like, okay, on to the next one. And, uh, and hey, you've cracked the top 20, which only one other Canadian male has done since the rankings have been kept uh, since 1973, that being Milos Raonic. So uh, big, big reason to celebrate that milestone and, and reason for us to, to look positively towards what's uh, going to come in the next uh, few years from this kid. Yeah, and certainly you look at what's transpired over the last year. I'm reflecting on when Felix was heading to Flushing Meadows last year, 2018, had really a great result qualifying and then uh, getting into that match with Denis Shapovalov and uh, kind of tragically having to to stop the match and retire in that fourth set because he was dealing with those heart palpitations. And I think that made, you know, all of Canada so anxious. What is the future going to be for, for this great young Canadian kid? Uh, if he's going to have some health struggles, is this going to be sort of an underlying issue that he's going to be dealing with? But of course he bounced back so marvelously and has put together such a fantastic 2019 season. And now 19th overall, Denis Shapovalov, that ranking, unfortunately, uh, heading in the other direction. He's 38th. He is playing Winston-Salem this week, uh, but he's not going to be seated at the U.S. Open. And yeah, he, he's kind of hit a, a tough spot, really, for for most of this year, kind of post-Miami Open, losing 10 of 14 matches. For me, if he can get to the U.S. Open and just win that first match, that would be a step in the right direction. Yeah, this will be the 10th main draw slam of his young career. Best result being the fourth round uh, at the U.S. Open in 2017. Uh, so maybe that will rekindle some some positive memories. But yeah, like you said, he's been struggling since Miami. He's 2-2 two and two now since Wimbledon on the uh, the hard courts. He did make the double semifinal in Montreal. So I think that should be taken as a, a definite positive. Uh, just before uh, hopping on with you here to record uh, our podcast tonight, I saw Tom Tebbett post that uh, it seems uh, Dennis is potentially working with Mikhail Yuzhny, a mm-hmm. uh, 37-year-old Russian who just recently retired. And if that's the case, I think both of us have been talking for some time that it would be good for him to maybe mix things up and get a fresh voice in there. And maybe Yuzhny is someone that can uh, help him sort of uh, you know, climb that, that ladder as a professional tennis player and get back to um, you know some of the better tennis we've seen from Dennis um, earlier this season. Yeah, that could be a nice partnership. Uh, usually, obviously, very experienced veteran player, former player, I should say, but made a couple semifinals years ago at, at the U.S. Open, a few other quarterfinals, one in Australia, one at the French Open, one at Wimbledon. And I've heard through the grapevine about him that he is one of the best hitting partners that you can have. I've heard that he was always sought after by players on the tour that – People love hitting with uh, Mikhail Yuzhny. He just gives them the perfect ball to sort of feed off of. And he has a one-hand and backhand himself. Uh, Surely very very knowledgeable about the game. So we'll see if that uh, partnership kind of comes into fruition. You are listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official Tennis Canada podcast. I'm Ben Lewis. He's Mike McIntyre. You can follow us on Twitter at MatchpointCan and follow along on Instagram, MatchpointCanada, and listen on SoundCloud. We'll get to the women's side. Madison Keys with... Really a stunning breakthrough week, uh, earning 
really the biggest title of her career at the Western and Southern Open. And uh, in a way, it kind of came out of nowhere because Keys had not been playing good tennis really since Wimbledon. She had that surprise second round exit uh, just at Rogers Cup the previous week. She lost an emotional match to Donna Vekic and was leaving the court in tears. But it it really goes to show you when you have such a talented ball striker like Keys, if she's feeling good any given week, she can beat just about anybody on the tour. Yeah, you just never know. And, and Madison Keys is supremely talented. We saw her a couple of years ago make the finals of the U.S. Open, then 2018 semis of the French. I mean, the talent is there. It's almost like it's kind of been, you know, it hasn't been activated yet in 2019. Uh, at the Rogers Cup, she seemed really down on herself in practice, really hard on herself uh, in between practice sets and, and hitting as well. So I certainly didn't see this one coming, but what an impressive path for her to take this title. I mean, she starts off against Muguruza in the first round, and I know the Spaniard's been struggling as well, but still not someone you want to face that early in a tournament. And then Kasekina, Simona Halep, Venus Williams, who was playing really well. Great to see her make the quarters. Uh, Sophia Kennan, who's been one of the players who's been the most sort of on fire uh, in recent months as well. And then taking out Kuznetsova, who uh, talk about surprises, that one was really something else. And uh, especially considering how she almost couldn't even make it over to North America with visa struggles earlier this summer. So for Madison Keys, you know, having a result like this must be such a huge confidence boost heading into the open, a place that she's already had tremendous success. And it isn't really a name that I would have thrown into my sort of, you know, watch out for names just given the way she'd been playing. But that's obviously changing with what happened in Cincinnati. Yeah, certainly. And uh, we actually had the privilege of speaking with Madison Keys on Sportsnet 5, Night of the Fans afternoon show when I uh, co-hosted a couple of shows last week on site at Rogers Cup. And she said this stretch of the season, summer hardcourt swing is by far her favorite stretch of the season where she feels she can play her best tennis. And it didn't happen at Rogers Cup, but certainly has happened in Cincinnati. And uh, surely she can gain a lot of momentum from that. Former U.S. Open finalist just two years ago when Sloane Stephens beat her there. Svetlana Kuznetsova, fantastic tournament, fantastic two tournaments, actually. Rogers Cup and Western and Southern Open really turning back the clock. Uh, She was a winner at the U.S. Open 10 years ago and really incredible that her career pushes on. Uh, My question now, I suppose, as we're uh, getting into U.S. Open qualifying, uh, who are your top contenders right now on the women's side if you had sort of a makeshift list? Oh, my God, my makeshift list is going to need like two pages at least (laughs) just to fit all these names because... Ben, like, it could be anybody. It could be absolutely anybody. I would hate to be, like, one of those bookies who make the odds for uh, for tennis tournaments <laughs> because I would feel like my career is on the line with every event that I try and put the odds out on. There's just so many good players right now. Honestly, I could give you a list of 20 players, and I wouldn't bat an eye if any one of them won it. I, I You can't also just base it on who had success in Toronto and Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. You know, if you recall a year ago when Nomi Osaka won, she wasn't coming in with a whole lot of momentum behind her game either. So I don't know, man. It's a, it's a, total, um, it's a total guess, and uh, I think it's just going to be an entertaining, really entertaining tournament with the women, as it so often seems to be these days. Uh, you know, it could be someone who's been sort of quiet lately, like Sloane Stevens or, uh, you know, Serena has been, uh, you know, this summer uh, dealing with injuries. But if she gets, you know, physically healthy, obviously dangerous in the slams where she's made three out of six finals since she's come back. Or, uh, you know, it could be one of these players like a Madison Keys or a Bianca Andreescu, of course, 
who had such a great run in Toronto. Uh, maybe a player like her who, who others don't know still quite as much about as she hasn't played everybody with as much regularity, being only 19 years old. So you're going to have to give me another week before I, I come to you with, with my list. Yeah. Uh, and that's the, the best way I can evade your question. Today. No, <laughs> that's very fair. And we'll uh, we'll have a full U.S. Open preview episode on Matchpoint Canada uh, the following week. But uh, it should be very clear. And, and this I, is in no way Canadian biased. Bianca Andreescu is absolutely a contender for Flushing Meadows with the tennis she has played in 2019. Yeah, I mean, coming back from all that time off, playing only one match in four months, coming back and winning the Rogers Cup. It's not just her hometown tournament. It's a huge tournament on the WTA calendar, mm-hmm. and she beat some impressive players along the way, uh, very wisely opting to skip Cincinnati. I'm so thankful that her and her team made that right choice this time around and obviously showing, and, and she acknowledged when we spoke to her in Toronto that that was something that she learned from earlier in the year when she did or tried to do the, the Sunshine uh, Double and so I think a Grand Slam tournament where she's going to get a day off in between each match is only going to do her uh, body even more, you know, wonders in terms of being able to sort of pace herself. And to me, she's definitely in the top. Uh, I put her in my top five threats. I can't tell you who the other four are because I still don't know. But I put her name in there based on recent play and the fact that uh, certainly she's not too burnt out at this time of the season, given the amount of uh, weeks that she had to take off. Yeah, that sounds good to me. I should mention Sloane Stevens, who you brought up in uh, the winner in 2017. She announced on uh, social media on her Twitter today that she's parted ways with coach Sven Gronfeld. So obviously getting a bit frustrated by a lack of results this season. It's been a a topsy-turvy year for Sloane, and she has parted ways with her head coach. Uh, Looking back at Rogers Cup, we we had so many fantastic interviews through the week. Got to chat with so many uh, great players and, and pundits. And we also had the privilege of speaking with a, a chair umpire in Julie Shenley, and she's a gold badge umpire and has been since 2016. And she was actually behind the chair during that uh, short-lived final of Rogers Cup when Bianca did beat Serena. Of course, Williams forced to retire with that back injury. But uh, it's always great uh, to get a perspective uh, from the you know the person in the chair overseeing these matches and managing the personalities and make sure making sure everything goes smoothly. I, I got to let you in on a secret. I love talking to chair umpires when I'm covering a tennis tournament. I believe I've had the uh, good fortune of getting to interview one umpire at uh, pretty much every tournament I've covered. Uh, going back to 2008 in Washington, D.C., where I spoke with Ali Neely, uh, who works, I think, primarily ATP events. And, uh, yeah, speaking with Julie Shenley was, was wonderful. I mean, just her background and the different languages she speaks uh, is really cool. And uh, the fact that she then ended up a couple days later working that final, which I hope she doesn't get paid by the minute because that would have been (laughs) rather disappointing uh, given the 19 minutes that Serena and Bianca put together in that final. But, uh, yeah, it was wonderful to sit down with her and get that inside perspective on, you know, a role that gets a lot of criticism. There are not too many chair umpires that get really lauded for their accomplishments or the way they handle things. You know, if you do a good job, really, you go unnoticed. And when you do normally get noticed as an umpire or a referee in other sports, it's probably because you've messed something up, unfortunately. So not a job I would want, but always enjoy speaking with the umpires. And uh, Julie Shenley was uh, was pretty great to talk to uh, just recently at Rogers Cup. Yes, certainly a, a thankless job. And uh, we'll have a listen now to our interview with chair umpire Julie Shenley. So Julie, tell me a little bit about how long you've been uh, a chair umpire for and how you got your start in this profession. Um, so, um, I got into tennis by playing, 
it's the only sport that I kind of clicked with. And uh, so I was playing for a while, obviously loved watching it on TV. Um, I'm from Norway and it's a very small tennis nation. So uh, our Davis Cup ties, for example, would be one-on-one, but the federation would ask the active young tennis players to come and officiate, be line officials. And I didn't really mind doing it, but I was doing it to watch better players play. Um, so for me, that's kind of how I got into it a little bit. Um, so it almost turned into a career like by accident. In a way. Oh, absolutely. I don't think anybody has ever said, I'm going to be a chair umpire. It right. kind of, you know, we have a passion for the sport. We're playing a lot of tennis. We like to be involved. We, Because of the passion, we want the sport to be the best possible. So, um, yeah, yeah, I would say that it was kind of a, it was a hobby to start uh, taking me places, see new people, cultures. Um, that's part of what I what I love with this job is just traveling and see all the different cultures around. Um, and um, yeah, before I knew it, it was kind of the weeks were piling up, and and I guess my hobby kind of slowly became my job. Right and I'm loving it. And uh, just in your experience now. Uh, uh, how many years have have you been in the role, and and what are some of the biggest challenges you find you face in, in the job? Uh, it's a bit tough to say because, like I said, I got my my first international certification in two thousand and four, and I would at that point do I've then started doing chairs, but at lower level tournaments, okay. and then I would be a line umpire at the bigger tournaments, and it would kind of slowly over time, you know, do, uh, you know, change into being a chair umpire for the bigger tournaments. So uh, I got a gold badge, which is the top level in officiating in uh, 2016, I believe. And uh, uh, yeah, so since then I've been with WTA and, and working these events. Do you find there's a big difference between umpiring, say, like a first round match in a tournament versus the later stages of either a big tournament or a grand slam? Uh, more pressure, just like the players sort of have more pressure in those moments? Uh, both yes and no. I would say, I mean, you know, we, we go out there, we want what's best for the match, and we, we want it to be as fair as possible to both players. So that's our main goal. Um, and if that's put on a big stadium match, of course, that comes with additional pressure and these kind of things. But uh, in general, and yes, you know, moving deeper into the tournament, it's more hype, there's uh, more attention around it. So, of course, it will be pressure. But at the same time, when we get into it, a match is a match and, and what we want is fairness. So, um, And uh, we, we've seen uh, technology adapt so much uh, through the course uh, of the years in the sport, specifically with the, the Hawkeye system, serve clock as well, and some other new innovations. Uh, can you just tell us maybe your views on the new technology and is it maybe helpful uh, to re- sometimes be able to fall back on that uh, Hawkeye system uh, as a chair umpire. Yeah, I think it's great that we have these officiating aids and that's what it's meant for. I mean, it is tough to see these balls, you know, coming 200 Ks down the the center serve. It's not easy to see with the human eye. So to be able to just settle, like if the, the players are in doubt, they get to challenge and and, you know, instead of having an ongoing dispute about something that, hey, it might be a correct call from the line official, but if the player has a doubt, you know, it might be tough to let it go. So just to be able to refocus of the match 
I, I think it's good that we we have these things to to help officiating, and also you know to to settle the players' minds and focus about um, about the next point basically, and with the surf clock and stuff, I think it's good that they um, now can see at the bigger events at least they can see the clock. Every second is kind of like a soft warning to them saying that this much time is what you have. Because before, they're also like, we have now uh, 25 seconds opposed to 20 seconds just a few years ago. And it's um, it, it goes quickly and it's tough to pace themselves. And we know it, like most of us have been players, we know how it is. And uh, we're trying to also you know, relate to the player and the situation and the point and all this. But at the same time, we do have the rule and it's we can only be that lenient at times. Uh, we're not out there to get them. So it's just, I think it's good to have, for example, this serve clock out there so the players can see, pace themselves. Uh, if they want to take another breath, good, they know they can do it. Um, but uh, yeah, they also see that if it goes down to zero, well, there there's the time violation. Um, One of the other initiatives that's been trialed, at least on the WTA tour, is having coaching at certain moments between um, games, um, but not at all tournaments and not at the, the Grand Slams. How difficult is it to sort of police when there is potentially coaching going on from the stands, considering that these are players from all different countries of the world, different languages being spoken? How do you differentiate what's encouragement from coaching, for example? Yeah, exactly. Like you said, like just like the players being from all around the world, the officials are from all around the world, and uh, it totally depends on on which languages I can understand and not. So it's 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 one of the toughest uh, code violation categories to for us to to keep track of, and you know we don't want to spend our focus on what the coaches is doing like we want to focus on the game and of course if we see the player looking over to the coaches uh, you know that's where our attention will go as well um, but um, we, we try to get the feel of could this be encouragement is it not um, I guess I would say that if if I see the coaches talking and it's bec- it's becoming long sentences Again, if I don't understand what they're saying, it's very tough to give mm-hmm. um, a warning for this. So I tr- try by, you know, f- for example, saying that, hey, can you keep it shorter or, you know, th- things like this and, and hope that we can kind of work together because we don't want to falsely give them a, a, a warning just because, you know, their encouragements were right, longer. Right. So it, it's a very tricky tricky uh, part of officiating this one. If they were speaking Norwegian with you though, though there's no way they'd get away with it, I guess. I think they wouldn't say anything, no. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's uh, like, I'm half Japanese uh, so, like, I would understand, uh, being Norwegian I understand Swedish, I understand Japanese and, and English mm-hmm. and that's kind of my limitation. So, uh, I hope players are not listening now from the other <laughs> languages. But it, again, it's 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 a lot about feelings too. Like you feel, you know, we can pick up a word here and there. If if you hear blah 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 derecha blah blah, I mean, you're we're now talking. This is not encouragement, right? This is a word that is not associated with mm-hmm. with um, with uh, encouraging. So you know, things like that we try to pick up and try to. Again, it's also if a coach is doing it. It's tough for the player to control that. You know, it's not like breaking a racket when it's all in the 
control exactly so it's 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 a tough it's a tough one we tried to find a good balance and and um, yeah (laughs) we just had a couple questions uh, on your experience at the tournament here in canada Mm -hmm. for rogers cup both uh, in toronto and montreal Mm -hmm. um how would you say canadian fans maybe compare to uh rest of rest of the fans uh, across the world uh, in terms of fairness maybe uh watching and knowledge of the sport if you really can get get a sense while you're here I think in general, like tennis fans are usually very good fans. Mm-hmm. So um, it's great atmosphere. Uh, you know, we just need them to show up, and then then we'll have a great atmosphere, and that kind of goes to any tournament. Uh, last question for you before we uh, let you go. Don't know if you have a match tonight or not, but uh, it's just coming to me. But proudest career accomplishment or moment for you thus far as a chair? There you have it. Our Ooh. interview with chair umpire um, Julie Shenley. And as you said, it is such a difficult job because really there, uh, you kind of want to just fade was, away uh, into the background. You don't I mean, really do want to know into, or notice a chair umpire. And those are the best nice. ones. And uh, uh, Julie is had a great handle the, on the job and the obviously you get the, uh, the Rio, sense that was, while players are traveling and working this uh, long calendar 11 month um, year that's something she's doing and, as well uh, and it's a major I mean, grind Grand Slam semis as I, well, I really like uh, from the umpires WK I've talked to including Julie that they're all but most of them are former tennis players who played up to a pretty competitive level but realized for one reason or another that maybe they weren't you know good enough to make a career out of it but being that they're former players, and, uh, they know what it's like to be on the, the tennis court. Season. They Thanks obviously for have me. a passion for the sport. Um, and, and just the fact that uh, they have that experience to draw on should help them, doesn't always help them, but should help them in many cases sort of connect with the, uh, the players. And uh, for myself, I've, you know, when I was younger, I played hockey with a bunch of NHL uh, linesmen and referees. And what I found with them too was the same sort of thing. Former players got to a certain point wanted to continue in the sport, and this was the way that they could do it. Um, one, one thing that's just coming to mind actually today was uh, all of these umpires, wouldn't it be cool if we could put them into a tournament and have them play off against each other, <laughs> and you could put the players up in the chair, like put Nick Kyrgios up in the chair for a Fergus Murphy match or something like oh, that, yeah. and, uh, and get them to experience it from the other side of things. But also to see how some of these umpires have kept up with it over the years would be kind of, uh, I don't know, I don't know how much traction I can get behind this, but no, uh, this is my, my big idea of the day. <laughs> that's a nice idea. It could be a t- turned into one of those great exhibition tournaments and it's all for charity. You know, why, why not do something like that at a day at, at Labor Cup for an afternoon? Get, get a little uh, doubles going, mixed doubles between the chair umpires, Roger Federer in the bench with some overrules and stuff like that. I think that would be a... A, a great little highlight reel. Uh, I, I'm sure right now Julie Shenley is busy at Flushing Meadows uh, for the final Grand Slam of the season at the U.S. Open because qualifying has begun. And we do have a few Canadians in the mix on the men's side, Stephen Diaz and Peter Polanski hoping to qualify. And then on the women's side, Catherine Sebov and, and Francoise Abanda. Obviously, these four are are not mega hopefuls, but uh, if anyone can, can make a main draw, I think that's an excellent excellent success yeah i'm always happy to see i mean in particular canadians who who you know have to struggle throughout the year who are outside of the, the top 100 they struggle financially they struggle with you know the the ups and and maybe more frequently the the downs of life as a a professional tennis player and it just means so much if they can qualify even if they don't get past the first round of the slam just that payday um some of the ranking points too 
But primarily, I just think from a financial standpoint, and, and you know, Vashik Pospisil has pointed out so much uh, this year, the um, inefficiencies and inequalities in the pay structure at tournaments. Mm-hmm. And for some of these players, if we could get, you know, Diaz, Polanski, Sibov, or Obanda to, to get into the main draw, even if they don't go around, even if they do win around, even better. Uh, so it'd be really nice to see them have that sort of um, moment of success uh, at a big Grand Slam tournament. But uh, all four, I think, are, are in tough with who they're facing. And uh, it's not easy to make it in, that's for sure. No, it's very difficult. Luck has been on Peter Polanski's side in the past, particularly uh, the one season getting four lucky loser uh, berths into Grand Slam. So if uh, he can get in again, that would be terrific. Uh, same with Diaz, Catherine Seaboff, and Francoise Abanda. Another Canadian having a, a tough go of it, and uh, we've detailed this in the past, but Jeannie Bouchard has now lost 11 matches in a row. I- I'm trying to find a silver lining, and I think I do have one because at Rod Cup. She played a very competitive match with Bianca Andreescu, and and Bianca, of course, went on to win the tournament in Vancouver. She went three sets with Timmy Ababosh, and then Kaya Kanepi, a strong Estonian player who's made a handful of Grand Slam quarterfinals, beat her in a competitive three sets at the New York Open. So Jeannie feels like, well, she doesn't have a win to show for it. She's at least getting closer. Yeah, those are not easy opponents. They've all been three set matches. So in that sense, hopefully, some reason. For a little bit of optimism, hopefully things are continuing to work well with her coach, uh, Jorge Tadero. But 11 straight defeats going all the way back to, I believe it's February 17th. That is a long time ago. I mean, I just think in, in our jobs, imagine we had a losing streak like that. I don't know, like podcasts going back to February that just got more thumbs down than thumbs up or something <laughs> right. like that. Yeah. That would just be so mentally taxing. So yeah. uh, she seems to, on the surface, be presenting the right attitude, which you've got to commend her for, because I don't think many players would be able to put a smile on like she's done. And it'd be great to see that streak end nowhere better than at the U.S. Open. If not, hopefully she's uh, willing to give it a push through the fall and close out the year with some victories. She closed out 2018 not too bad, so maybe she can finish this year with uh, with something positive as well. Yes, uh, I'm hopeful for that, and uh, we'll see what Flushing Meadows brings, but expectations will be low. Uh, we do have to credit Jeannie Bouchard for being such a fantastic guest, though, on our podcast the other week. We do have one more guest for the program, uh, as I had the opportunity to speak with our Federal Minister of Science and Sport, Kirsty Duncan, and uh, she was very clear that she was you know, eagerly watching and enjoying Bianca Andreescu's big title at the Aviva Center in Toronto. Yeah, I like that we're breaking out and, and branching out sort of and, and getting some different guests to, to offer different perspectives. And certainly based in Canada, it's it's nice to have some Canadian guests as well. And in this case, despite the fact that Matchpoint Canada is totally not involved in politics, uh, <laughs> it is cool to get our federal minister of sport uh, on the program to talk about what a successful season it's been for Canadian tennis and uh, just how important it is to pump money in, whether it's Canada or any other country, how important it is to fund those athletic programs to get young boys and girls into these uh, activities. Uh, you know, there's there's lots of other activities for kids to get into that are not as productive and positive. I'm thinking video games and things like that. And mm-hmm. so to have them uh, have opportunities like this uh, funded by uh, governments and uh, and get the kids out there is, is really important. So great that you had the chance to talk to her today and uh that's a cool interview let's uh let's give it a listen uh kirsty first off thank you so much uh, for joining us on matchpoint canada oh uh, listen ben it's wonderful to be with you it's a real honor 
Well, we really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, I think before we get into maybe speaking about tennis specifically in Canada, maybe you can just explain a bit to our listeners uh, about your current role in the federal government as Minister of Sport and, and the objectives and maybe obligations that come with that. Sure. So I come from sport, uh, athlete, coach, and judge all my life. Uh, gymnastics was my main sport, uh, but taught diving, trampolining, was a marathon runner and triathlete. So I was really honored when the prime minister asked me to add sport Uh, to my role as Minister of Science. I was absolutely thrilled. I love sport. I live for sport. I want everyone to benefit from sport. So when I came in, they asked me what I was going to do, and I was very clear. I would work to end abuse, discrimination, harassment in sport, maltreatment of any kind, and very committed to achieving gender equity in sport. Uh, well, that's uh, fantastic and clearly uh, very well-rounded in that in that field. Sounds like you're a great athlete, which is uh, fantastic to hear. Uh, in terms of, of the tennis side, uh, we've seen, of course, fantastic success uh, coming lately in our nation. And most recently, mm. I'm, I'm, I'm sure you're watching along when we saw Bianca Andreescu win in Toronto at the Rogers Cup. It was uh, just incredible. Maybe shed some light on what a victory like that in sport uh, can not only do for a sport like tennis in Canada, but maybe uh, women in this country interested in sport. Uh, Sure. First of all, let me say I am so proud of Bianca. At 19 years old, I think she's shattered expectations time and time again, and particularly, um, you know, she's come off uh, an injury, and I mean, she was wowing us at the Rogers Cup. She's the first Canadian to win in 50 years. It's a huge deal, and yes, I absolutely was watching And then, of course, there's the class and sportsmanship that followed. And I think it's a true testament to who she is. I loved what Serena Williams said about her, that she is an old soul, how she walked over, hugged her. You had two champions discussing what it's like to overcome an injury. She demonstrated really true Canadian spirit. And, of course, we want to wish Serena a very speedy recovery. Yeah, and such a fantastic moment as a a young role model, as you mentioned, Bianca being just uh, 19 years old. You mentioned off the top uh, gender equity being so important in sport in this country. And I I know as part of the 2018 budget, uh, there was a large commitment made in terms of uh, $30 million over three years to support data and, and research. How, how is, uh, I guess, that process going right now in Canada, uh, achieving gender equity in sport, and what are some of the things we still need to do? I love that you asked that, Ben. As you're right, in Budget 18, we committed, 2018, we committed to achieving gender equity in sport by 2035. I've been very clear. I'd like to see that happen a lot sooner. And by gender equity, I mean equity in participation, in coaching, in officiating. And, you know, I've pulled the data for all that by sport, and I know the work that needs to be done. And we've said to our national sport organizations, we expect to see gender equity 
on our national sport organization boards by 2024. We now have for the first time within Sport Canada a gender equity secretariat. We have a gender equity strategy. We have an organization like CAUSE that's doing gender audits of our national sport organizations. What's working, what's not, how we do better. We're funding how we collect data, and we're going to have the first ever gender equity research hub for sport in Canada. So we're working. There's more work to be done. Well, and it sounds like we're making a tremendous strides. You're listening to Matchpoint Canada and our guest this week, Minister of Science and Minister for Sport and Persons with Disabilities, Kirsty Duncan, joining us on the line. Uh, we actually had a question from, from a listener on our social media, which I wanted to share with you. Uh, his name was Leon, and he was curious actually about uh, more specifically funding for Tennis Canada and uh, funding for tennis in the prairies and the West Provinces. He uh, said, we are a winter nation, and in order for a sport like tennis to have a chance to grow across Canada, we need more indoor infrastructure in place to support this. Is that something uh, this government has looked into, and is that something that's going to be vital for the growth of tennis? Well, first of all, let me just say that tennis is one of Canada's favorite games. Uh, You know, I think uh, uh, the national organization goes back to the late 1800s, if I remember my history. Uh, My mom uh, was a a tennis player here in Toronto. She was a champion at her club. She was a former phys ed teacher. We grew up playing tennis tennis, loved the game, grew up watching the great Billie Jean King, Connor, McEnroe, Agassi. Of course, there was Carling Bassett in the 1980s, the Williams sisters, and now we're watching Andreescu. My goal as sport minister, we want to support our national sport organization. We want to support our world-class athletes. And I'm responsible at the national level, and I work with my provincial counterparts, the provincial ministers across the country, and they are responsible for what's happening in the province. I will share something that we've been working on uh, for the first time in Canadian history. I worked with the sports ministers across the country to end abuse discrimination, harassment, maltreatment of any kind. In February, together, we signed the Red Deer Declaration, which is all sport ministers committing to ending abuse. And I'll give you one other example. I've put in place a toll-free confidential helpline that an athlete, a family member, a coach, an official, anyone who witnesses abuse or discrimination, harassment, maltreatment, can call in from across the country and say, this is what I've experienced, this is what I've witnessed, and they will provide information of where to go for help within the province and the territory. 
And that uh, sounds like such a, an important initiative uh, that obviously you've played a, an enormous role in helping, and, and that's great to hear. Uh, a couple more questions for you. Uh, tennis, for example, uh, can maybe often be viewed in that lens of one of those more elitist, expensive type of sports. And I know hockey is really sort of viewed like the main sport in Canada, also expensive. Do we have maybe any initiatives uh, within either the federal government or uh, provincially uh that, that can sort of see these sports become as affordable as possible and really available for everyone uh, and every child? Um, I, you know, I think of growing up and, you know, if you had a ball and a racket, uh, batting it against the side of the school wrong. But I can tell you of a, a program that ran in my community. It was a young woman led it. Um, she did very well nationally, and she wanted to bring the sport to our newcomers. And she worked very hard and achieved, uh, helped fund a program that uh, provided equipment and taught the game, uh, a great game to our newcomers in our community. And it was wonderful. I supported her over the years and just to go out see at the end of the season kids who had not been exposed to tennis to see them loving the game participating in a tournament and uh, just really benefiting from everything tennis has to offer. And just bringing the conversation quickly back to, to women in sport, and uh, we know about your gender equity campaign in this country, which is fantastic. Uh, I, I know part of sort of going over that research and data and having that funding in the budget is uh, sharing personal experience in sport uh, for Canadian women and girls. How important maybe is it for a little girl to see a great 19-year-old champion like Bianca Andreescu or maybe seeing Jeannie Bouchard in years past uh, reach the Wimbledon final. How, how uh, critical are those success stories uh, coming out of our country? I think witnessing legends, absolute legends, competing on Canadian soil is so important, especially for young girls who need to see for themselves that the sky truly is the limit. And that's why we want to keep supporting our athletes to compete on the world stage, uh, to make sure they have all the tools and resources necessary to shine and that they serve as role models to the next generation. Excellent. And uh, last question for you. I, I know uh, you, you ran down your list of athletics, uh, triathlete, which is great to hear, uh, and, and experienced runner. Do you have any experience on the tennis courts yourself? And does our, our Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, who looks like a pretty athletic guy himself, uh, do you know how he would fare with a tennis racket? Uh, I can talk about, I grew up, my mom was a phys ed teacher. I said my mom was a tennis uh, champion mm -hmm. in her club. Uh, there was not a birthday gift that did not come <laughs> with a new can of tennis balls. Uh, we watched uh, tennis religiously growing up, uh, whether it was Wimbledon or any time it was on TV, Wide World of Sports. Uh, tennis was really big in our family. I can tell you our Prime Minister, like me, lives uh, love sport. Uh, we used to be seatmates in the House of Commons. Uh, we talked on those long hours of voting. We talked policy. He can talk intelligently on 
really intelligently on any file, whether it's climate change or our veterans or sport. Uh, he is a real champion uh, for sport, as am I. And, yes, I played tennis. Uh, we had tennis courts across from our house growing up, and my mom made sure it was one of the actually it was the first sport I learned to play. <laughs> that's fantastic. Well, uh, that, that's great to hear that uh, you were one of many tennis players across the country. Thank you so much uh, uh, for joining us and telling you uh, telling our, our listeners about all these fantastic initiatives uh, that we have in Canada to uh, to improve sport uh, across our nation in terms of equity and uh, also to to fight abuse, which is just excellent to hear. Ben, thank you for the opportunity. And I really would like to give a shout out to Bianca and all our tremendous tennis champions right now. And uh, we're love, we're loving watching them play and they really are inspiring a nation. Thank you for this today. And there you have it, our interview with uh, Kirsty Duncan, the Federal Minister of Science and Sport, uh, sharing some of the major in- initiatives from the uh, federal government. We didn't have a chance to see uh, Prime Minister Trudeau on the grounds at Aviva Center. If I had, I would have loved to challenge him to maybe, you know, a, a little tie break to seven, see what he's got. He looks like an, <laughs> he looks like an athletic guy, but I don't know if he's nimble with a tennis racket or not. Uh, I know Kirsty says uh, he loves all sports, but uh, he was <laughs> not found a Rogers Cup, uh, at least this year, maybe next year. He was, uh, I believe, a high school drama teacher, so I don't know if he leans more towards the arts than athletics, but uh, I did reach out to his office earlier this summer to see if we could get him on the program. Somewhat ambitious of us, I guess, of course. Uh, They politely uh, sort of declined saying, busy schedule. I guess, you know, that could be, given the fact he's the Prime Minister. But I think if we keep hounding him, we might one day get Justin Trudeau, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, on the show. I I approached Stephen Harper, our, our previous Prime Minister, at the Rogers Cup, uh, about six, seven years ago, and got pretty close to uh, one of his uh, press secretaries, and they were seeing if it could work, but he was there with his son that day, just being a dad, so uh, didn't come to be. But one day, Ben, mark my words, we will get a sitting <laughs> prime minister that on is, this podcast. Yeah, that is the goal. We will uh, keep on trying, and uh, for you tennis fans, plenty to be excited about this week. Qualifying has started at the U.S. Open. The draw will be coming out on at noon on on Thursday, so we'll have plenty to break down, and I know we're going to have a full preview episode uh, for next week. Maybe we can deliver a short list uh, of women's contenders. I I think the list is a little easier on the men's side when you have three guys winning all of those majors. I will work on my women's list for next week. I promise to have something more tangible, but super excited for the last slam of the year. It goes so quickly. I feel like it wasn't, you know, that long ago we were getting ready for our Aussie Open shows and and then it just flies. The French and Wimbledon so close back to back. Mm -hmm. This is our last chance for Grand Slam tennis. So let's enjoy the next few weeks and, uh, Please do check back with us. We'll have lots and lots to talk about here. Yes, we will. For Mike McIntyre, I'm Ben Lewis. Uh, This has been Matchpoint Canada. We will talk to you again next time.